Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Trying to connect hillbilly Bud Gregory the atomic dust destroying America was like joining simple math and nuclear physics. But Dr. Murphy found the answer. The Gregory Circle by Murray Leinster. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. With at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. We are thankful for all our listeners around the world. And we love to hear from you. We received this comment on YouTube. Hi there, my name is Bernard. I live in Amsterdam. From my youth, I'm crazy about sci-fi. Every night before I go to sleep, switch the PC on, listen to your great voice and fantastic stories. Thanks a lot. Keep it coming. Bless you. Well, thank you, Bernard, for listening to us and for your comment. If you have something to say, send us an email, scott at lostsci-fi.com. We would love to hear from you. Sometimes an author likes a character he or she creates so much that they continue to use that character in story after story. Such is the case with Murray Leinster's use of the fictional character Bud Gregory, who appeared three times in Thrilling Wonder Stories magazine in 1947, and again in 1948. From the April 1947 issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories magazine, let's turn to page 50 for The Gregory Circle by Murray Leinster. Chapter 1. Chain Disaster On Monday, Bud Gregory sat in magnificent idleness, before the shed, which was his automobile repair shop, in the village of Brandon, 
on the edge of the Great Smokies. That day, something impalpable and invisible descended upon Cincinnati, and people began to go to hospitals with their blood undergoing changes over which the doctors threw up their hands. On Tuesday, Bud Gregory meditated doing some work on the four automobiles awaiting repair in his shop, but did not feel like working and went fishing instead. On that day, the Geiger counters in the Bureau of Standards in Washington went uniformly crazy so that it was impossible to standardize the byproducts of the atomic piles turning out nuclear explosive for national defense. On Wednesday, Bud Gregory reluctantly put in half an hour's work. Yawning, he took his pay for the job and went home and took a nap. That day, 40 head of cattle on a West Virginia hillside lay down and died, and a trout stream in Georgia was found to be full of dead fish. Four cancer patients in a home for incurables in Frankfort, Kentucky, suddenly took a quite impossible turn for the better. They walked out of the hospital three weeks later and went back to work. On Thursday, Bud Gregory... That was the way of it at the beginning. Bud Gregory seemed to have no connection with any one of the series of unusual events. The events themselves were simply preposterous. As, for example, the fact that all the foliage in a ten-mile patch of mountain country in Pennsylvania turned vaguely purplish overnight and then wilted and turned to unwholesome pulp. Three days later, there was not a green leaf or a living blade of grass in thirty-odd square miles. That did not seem to have any rational connection with Bud Gregory or any other event. But the connection was there. It was Dr. David Murphy of the Bureau of Standards who was the first to add the various items together to a plausible sum. It did not include a backwoods automobile repairman, of course. There was no data for that. But it was a very sound guess just the same. Murphy was a physicist, not a doctor of medicine, and his salary at the Bureau was $4,200 a year, with an appropriate civil service rating. He added the several odd events together, and they were convincing. But the answer was apparently impossible. He could not get any of his superiors in the Bureau to agree with him on the need for action. He thought the need was very great indeed. So he took a certain amount of accumulated civil service leave, drew out $500 from his bank, and drove off in his battered old car to investigate at his own expense. Tucked in the car were certain items of equipment from the Bureau, which he had no right to borrow, and which would take most of a year's pay to replace if anything should happen to them. He went to the sear and barren area in Pennsylvania and made certain tests. He drove to Cincinnati and made more tests. He went on to the place in West Virginia where cattle had died, and asked questions and did improbable things to other ailing cows and steers. Then he drove back to Washington at the best speed his rattletrap car could make. 
he went first to his home and told his wife to pack up. He explained with crisp precision, and she looked at him in frightened doubt. He went to the Bureau of Standards, he was still technically on leave, and showed the results of his test to some of the men who worked with him. They were still unable to use the Geiger counters in the Bureau, but one of his friends was heading for New York to use apparatus at Columbia, which had not gone haywire. Murphy got him to take along his samples. Then he went to a friend who happened to be a meteorologist and got confirmatory bad news. The weather maps of the period covering the unexplained phenomena told him just how likely his surmise was and where a search should be made for the primary cause of the disasters. Then Murphy piled his wife and small daughter in the car, drew out all the rest of the money he had in the bank, and headed for the Great Smokies. It was strictly logical action. Epidemic leukemia in Cincinnati. Ruined Geiger counters in Washington. Dead cattle in West Virginia. Dead trout in Georgia. The sudden cure of cancer patients in Frankfort, Kentucky and a ten-mile patch of dead vegetation in Pennsylvania. If Murphy could have gotten someone in authority to listen to him, the measures to be taken would have been quicker and much more drastic. But nobody would listen. So Murphy had to work it out on his own. His car was old, but he made Lynchburg the first day. He was not at ease. He got started early on the second day and, by nightfall, was well past Charlotte toward the mountains. He and his family stopped at a small country hotel, and during the evening, Murphy got in to talk with a power line man, who told him worriedly that power line losses over three counties had gone up to seven times normal in two days, in a smooth curve, and now we're headed down again. There was no explanation. Murphy fidgeted when he heard it. He made his family sleep with closed windows that night, in spite of the stuffiness of their rooms, and they started off again near daybreak. It was about three in the afternoon when he met Bud Gregory. Bud Gregory sat in splendid somnolence before the shed, which was his repair shop. The village of Brandon was a metropolis of three hundred souls, not far within the Great Smokies. There were mountains in every direction. There was blue sky overhead. There was red clay underfoot. Bud Gregory dozed contentedly. There were three cars awaiting his attention. Each of them had been brought to him solely because he was the best mechanic in seven states. Actually, he was much more than that, so much more that there is no word for what he was. Each car had been brought reluctantly, because he would repair them only when he felt like it or needed money, and then would do in minutes a job anybody else would need hours or days to do. At the moment, he did not feel like working, and he did not need money, so he dozed. Flies buzzed about him. Insects made noises off in the distance. Somewhere, chickens cackled feebly 
and somewhere a wagon with a squeaky wheel moved sedately away from Brandon. Murphy's car was plainly in trouble when Bud Gregory first heard it. Not many cars came through, Brandon. The local highways were traversable by very light vehicles, and they could be traveled by tractors, but mules were surest. This car was away off the main track. It came on, booming, and Bud Gregory awoke. It climbed rather desperately over a red clay hill and came into Brandon. It was heavily loaded. Murphy drove. There were a woman and a little girl in the back. The rest was luggage, bags and parcels of every possible shape and size and outward appearance. But Bud Gregory looked at the car. Murphy saw his sign and steered the car toward it. He stopped it, but the motor continued to run. Murphy plainly turned off the ignition. The motor boomed on. Murphy got out and called to Bud above the noise of the engine. It won't stop. Bud rose, slouched to the car, and threw up the hood. He reached in. There were thunderous, racketing explosions. The motor stopped dead. Then it made frying cooking noises. You're lucky, Bud drawled. Didn't burn out no bearings yet. Then he drawled again. Pump shaft broke, huh? Yes, Murphy said bitterly. I kept going in hope of coming on a repair shop. Can you fix it? Will the motor freeze up? Bud spoke negligently, looking at the car and all the parcels. Uh-huh. Oil's all burn up in the cylinders. When she cools, she freezes. But if you pour water in her now, you'll bust the cylinder block. Murphy clamped his jaws, his hands clenched. He wasn't far enough into the Smokies for his needs, and that power line loss business meant that he had to hurry. Any chance of getting another car? He asked desperately. Buying another car would put an impossible dent in his resources, but he felt that the matter was urgent enough to justify such a step. He had two possible courses of action, this and flight to the farthest possible part of the West. He'd chosen this because it meant a fight against the danger he foresaw. This here's a pretty good car, Bud Gregory drawled. Fix her up and she'll be all right. But it'll take days, said Murphy bitterly. You've got to take the motor practically apart. Bud Gregory spat with vast precision at a cluster of flies about a previous splash of tobacco juice. She'll take a couple of hours to cool, he said dryly. That's all. No bearings burnt. Ain't never yet seen a car I couldn't fix. I kind of got a knack for it. But you've got to take off the cylinder head, protested Murphy, and replace the rings and fix the valves and take the pump apart and get a new shaft. No garage in the world would undertake the job in less than four days. I'll do it, said Bud Gregory, in two hours and a half. And two hours will be waiting for it to cool. He grinned. He wasn't boasting. He was showing off a little, perhaps, but he was saying something he knew with absolute knowledge. 
Murphy threw up his hands. Do that, he said bitterly, and I'll believe in miracles. He got his wife and small daughter out of the car. He led them down to the general store of Brandon, which sold fertilizer, dry goods, harness, perfumery, canned goods, farm machinery, and general supplies. He bought the materials for a picnic lunch, and he and his family came back. They sat in the car, with the doors open for coolness, and ate. But Murphy was uneasy. Bud Gregory dozed. Time passed. The crackling, frying sounds of the overheated motor dwindled and ceased. Presently, Murphy got out and paced up and down beside the car, restlessly. After a time, he went to the back and took out a small, heavy parcel. He opened it, and there was a freakish-looking metal-lined glass tube with electrical connections plainly showing it to be akin to radio tubes, but of a completely different shape. Murphy threw a tiny switch, and from somewhere inside the box, a click sounded. A moment later, there was another. Then two clicks close together, and a pause, and another. Murphy watched it, worried. It clicked briskly, but unrhythmically. There was no order in the sequence of tiny sounds. Bud Gregory sat somnolently in the shade. He turned his eyes and regarded Murphy and the box. What good does that do? Murphy's wife said. None at all, Murphy said wretchedly. It only tells me nothing's happened to us yet. He stood watching the box, in which nothing moved at all, but from which clickings came at brief intervals. Chickens cackled. Somewhere a horse cropped at grass and the sound of its jaws was audible. Insects hummed and buzzed and stridulated. The box clicked. Bud Gregory got up and came over curiously. He regarded the box with an interested intentness. It was not an informed look, as of someone looking at a familiar object. It wasn't even a puzzled look, as of someone trying to solve the meaning of something strange. He wore exactly the absorbed expression of a man who picks up an unfamiliar book and reads it and finds it fascinating. What's, uh, what's this here thing do? asked Bud, drawling. It's a Geiger counter, said Murphy. He had no idea what Bud was. Nobody had, not even Bud. But Murphy said, it counts cosmic ray impacts and neutrons. It's a detector for cosmic rays and radioactivity. Bud's face remained uncomprehending. Don't mean nothing to me, he drawled. Kind of funny, though, how it works. Something hits and current goes through, and then it cuts off till something else hits. Why you want it for? Chapter 2 Miracle it was genuine curiosity, but an ordinary man looking at a Geiger counter does not understand that a tiny particle at high velocity, so small that it passes through a glass tube and a metal lining without hindrance, makes a Geiger tube temporarily conductive. Murphy stared blankly at Bud Gregory. How the heck? 
Then he said curiously, it was invented to detect radiations that come from nobody knows where, and it's used in the plants that make atom bombs to tell when there's too much radioactivity, too much for safety. I heard about atom bombs, but Gregory drawled. Never knew how they worked. Murphy, still curious, spoke in words as near to one syllable as he could. This man had said he could make an impossible repair and had the air of knowing what he was talking about. He looked at a Geiger counter, and he knew how it worked and had not the least idea what it was used for. Murphy gave him a necessarily elementary account of atomic fission. He was appalled at the inadequacy of his explanation, even as he finished it. But Bud Gregory drawled, Oh, that. Hmm, I get it. Them little things that knock that your, um, your, uh, uranium stuff to flinders or the same kind of things that make this dinkus work. They kind of knock a little bit of air apart when they hit it. I bet they change one kind of stuff to another kind, too, if enough of them hit it. Huh? Murphy jumped a foot. This lanky and ignorant backwoods repairman had absorbed highly abstruse theory, put into a form so simplified that it practically ceased to have any meaning at all and had immediately deduced the fact of ionization of gases by neutron collision and the transmutation of elements. He not only understood, but could use his understanding. Right interesting, said Bud Gregory, and yawned. I reckon your motor's cool enough to work on. He put his hand on the cylinder block. It was definitely hot, but not hot enough to scorch his fingers. Yeah, he said. I'll fix the pump shaft first. He went languidly to a well beside the repair shed. He drew a bucket of water. He poured it into the radiator. There was a very minor hissing, which ceased immediately. He filled the radiator, reached down and worked at the pump shaft with his fingers, and with a speculative, distant look in his eyes, then straightened up. He shambled into the shed and came out, trailing a long, flexible cable behind him. Up to the very edge of the Smokies, and for a varying distance into them, there is no village so small or so remote that it does not have electric power. He put a round wooden cheese box on the running board of the car and drew out two shorter cables with clips on their ends. He adjusted them. Murphy saw an untidy tangle of wires and crude hand-wound coils in the box. There were three cheap radio tubes. Bud Gregory turned on a switch and leaned against the mudguard, waiting with infinite leisureliness. What's that? asked Murphy indicating the cheese box. Ain't got any name, said Bud Gregory. Something I fixed up to weld stuff with. It's welding your shaft. He looked absolutely into the distance. It saves a lot of work, he added, without interest. But, but you can't weld a shaft without taking it out, protested Murphy. It is short. Bud Gregory yawned. This don't. It's some kind of stuff them tubes make. 
It don't go through iron. It just kind of bounces around. Where there's a break, it heats up and welds. When it's all welded, it just bounces around. Murphy swallowed. He walked around the car and looked at the apparatus in the cheese box. He traced leads with his eyes. His mouth opened and closed. But that can't do anything, he protested. The current will just go around and around. All right, said Bud Gregory. Just as you please. He waited patiently. Presently, there was a faint humming noise. Bud Gregory turned off the switch and reached down. He removed the connecting clamps and meditatively fumbled with the water pump. That's okay, he finally said. Try it if you like. He poked in the cheese box, changing connections apparently at random. Murphy reached down and fingered the water pump. He had made certain of the trouble with his car, and he knew exactly how the broken shaft felt. Now it was perfect, exactly as if it had been taken out, welded, smoothed, trued, and replaced. It feels all right, said Murphy incredulously. Yeah, said Bud Gregory. It is. Your car's froze now, though. Take the handle and try it. Murphy got out the starting handle from the toolbox. He inserted it and strained. The motor was frozen solid. It could not be stirred. Murphy felt sick. Wait a minute, said Bud Gregory, and try again. He put a single one of the clamps on the motor and tucked the other way in the cheese box. He turned on the switch. Heave now he suggested. Murphy heaved and almost fell over. There was no resistance to the movement of the motor except compression, which was infinitely springy. There was no friction whatever. It moved with an incredible fluid ease. It had never moved so effortlessly, though the compression remained as perfect as it had ever been. Murphy stared. Bud Gregory took off the clamp. Try again, he said, grinning. With all his strength, Murphy could not move the motor. Overheated, it was frozen tight with all the oil burned from the inner surface of the cylinders. Yet an instant before, yeah, said Bud Gregory dryly. He threw on the ignition switch, got into the driver's seat, and stepped on the starter. The motor fairly bounced into life. It ran smoothly. He adjusted it to a comfortable idling speed and got out. We'll run her for ten, fifteen minutes, he said casually, to get fresh oil spread around. Then you all fixed. Murphy simply goggled. How does that work, he said blankly. Bud Gregory shrugged. Steel is little hunks of stuff sticking together. These tubes make a kind of stuff that makes the outside ones slide easy on each other. I fixed up this dinkus to help loosen nuts it was too tight, and for working on axles and so on. That'll be five dollars, okay? Yes, my word, said Murphy. He fumbled out his wallet and turned over a five-dollar bill. Listen, you eliminated friction. Completely. 
There wasn't any friction. Where'd you get the idea for that thing? Bud Gregory yawned. It just come to me. I got a knack for fixing things. It should be patented, said Murphy feverishly. What'll you make one of these for me for? Bud Gregory grinned lazily. Too much trouble. Took me a day and a half to put it together and get it working. I don't like that kind of work. A hundred dollars? Five hundred? And royalties? Bud Gregory shrugged. Too much trouble, he said. I get along. Don't aim to work myself to death. You can go along now. Your car's all right. He shambled over to his chair. He seated himself with an air of infinite relaxation and leaned back against the corner of the shed. As Murphy drove away, he raised one hand in utterly lazy farewell. But Murphy drove down the red clay road marveling. There had been only a two-hour delay instead of the four to seven days that any other garage in the world would have needed. Murphy drove to what he believed would be either the only safe place within a thousand miles, that, or the place where he and his family would definitely be killed. But for a while, he did not think of that. He was facing the slowly realized fact that Bud Gregory was something that there isn't yet a word for. He could not yet realize the full significance of the discovery, but it was startling enough to knock out of his head, for the moment, even the deadly danger implied by leukemia in Cincinnati and dead grass in Pennsylvania and dead trout in Georgia and Geiger counters gone crazy in Washington. Murphy still didn't connect Bud Gregory with the danger. Chapter 3 Hidden Connection Death fell out of a rain cloud in Kansas. A driving summer rainstorm swept across the wheat fields of the plains, and where it fell, the growing wheat died. The occupants of every farmhouse on which the rainstorm beat died, too, in a matter of days. The Mississippi River became a stinking broth of dead and rotting fish above St. Louis, and the noisomeness floated downstream to poison the water all the way to the Gulf and beyond. Dead birds fell from the skies over a dozen states, and where they fell, the earth went barren in little round spaces about them. A patch of the Gulf Stream turned white with dead fish. A game preserve in Alabama became depopulated. There were 300 deaths in one night in Louisville. There were 60 in Chicago. The Tennessee Valley Power Generating Plant blew out every dynamo in five hectic minutes, during which sheet lightning hurtled all about the interior of the generator buildings. Then death struck Akron, Ohio. Everybody knows about that. 12,000 people in three days. And a whole section of the city roped off, and nobody allowed to enter it. And the dogs and cats and even the sparrows writhing feebly on the streets before, they too died. It was radioactive dust that had done it. And Oak Ridge was blamed. 
as the only possible source of radioactive dust and gas which could kill capriciously at a distance of hundreds of miles. The newspapers raged. Congressmen, at home between sessions, leaped grandiloquently into print with infuriated demands for a special session of Congress in order that an investigation might be launched to fix responsibility. As if fixing responsibility would end the continuing disasters. Eminent statesmen announced forthcoming laws which would destroy utterly every trace of atomic science in the United States and make it a capital offense to try to keep the United States in a condition either to defend itself or to keep abreast of the rest of the world. Oak Ridge was shut down and every uranium pile dismantled, this to appease the public and every available investigator was dispatched to Oak Ridge to uncover the appalling carelessness which had killed as many victims as a plague. The only trouble was that all this indignation was baseless. Radioactive dust and gases were the cause of the deaths, to be sure, but the Smith Report had pointed out the danger from such byproducts of chain reaction piles and elaborate precautions had been taken against them. The material which killed had not come from Oak Ridge. It couldn't have. Murphy had never even suspected it. The amount of dust was wrong. The amount of deadly stuff necessary to produce the observed effects simply couldn't have come from the atom piles in operation. It was too much. And besides, it would have killed anybody in its neighborhood at the point of its release into the air. And nobody had died at Oak Ridge. It came from somewhere else. Picking his way desperately into the heart of the Smokies, Murphy kept track of events by his car radio. Two hundred miles in, the roads were so bad that a hundred-mile journey was a good ten hours' drive. There was enough data for a rough calculation of the amount of dust and gases that must have been released. When Murphy made his calculation, sweat broke out all over his body. Such a quantity of fissioning material could not result from a man-made atomic pile. The piles that men had made were as large as were readily controllable. This was incomparably larger. All the piles at Oak Ridge and at Hanford in Washington together could not produce a twentieth or a hundredth of the stuff that had been released. Somehow, somewhere, a chain reaction had been started with so monstrous an amount of material to work on that it staggered the imagination. And it was increasing. It seemed to be growing like a cancer. Whatever had begun a chain reaction outside of Oak Ridge and Hanford, and however it had become possible, it staggered the imagination. The output of murderous byproducts increased day by day. It was building up to an unimaginable climax. There was no danger of an atomic explosion, of course. An atomic pile does not blow up. But by the amount of byproducts released, something on the order of a small but increasing volcano 
was at work somewhere. Instead of giving off relatively harmless gases and smoke, it gave off the most deadly substances known to man. There could be no protection against such invisible death. Poured into the air at sufficiently high level, doubtless carried up by a column of hot air, finely divided dust and deadly gas could travel for hundreds of miles before touching Earth. Apparently, they did. Where they touched Earth, nothing could live. Not only did living things die after breathing in the deadly stuff, but the ground itself became murderous. To walk on an area where the ground emitted radioactive radiation was to die, to breathe the air exposed to those rays. Murphy went desperately on in his search for the impossible source of the invisible carriers of death. He found the first evidence that he was on the right track a hundred miles from a telephone. He was far beyond power lines and railroads. He was in that Appalachian highlands where life and language is a hundred years behind the rest of America. He stopped to buy food and ask hopeless questions at a tiny, unbelievably primitive store. He tried the Geiger counter, and it clicked measurably more often than before. Twenty miles farther on, its rate of clicking had gone up 50%. He spent a day in seemingly aimless wandering, driving the laboring car over roads that had never before known nomadic tires. Then he left his wife and daughter as boarders in a hillbilly cabin. His wife was not easy about it. She protested. But what will happen to us? she asked desperately. I want to share whatever happens to you, David. Murphy was not a particularly heroic person. He was frankly scared, but he spoke firmly. Listen, my dear, something like a uranium pile has started up somewhere in these hills. It's on a scale that nobody's ever imagined before. It's so big that it's incredible that human beings could have started it. It's pouring out radioactive dust and gases into the air. They're being spread by the winds. Where the stuff lands, everything dies. And the pile is increasing in size and violence. If it keeps on increasing, it will make at least this continent uninhabitable. And it may destroy all the life in the world. Not only human life, but every bird and beast and even the fish in the ocean deeps. And something's got to be done. But I brought you so far with me, said Murphy doggedly, because you were no safer in Washington than anywhere else. So far, death from the thing is a matter of pure chance. Wherever it's happening, the ground must be so hot that a column of air rises from it like smoke from a forest fire. But the place where there's least smoke from a fire is close to its edge. That's why I brought you this close. You're safer here than farther away, and much safer than you'd be closer. But you intend to go on, she protested. I've got a protective suit, he told her. I managed to borrow one quite unlawfully from the Bureau. I couldn't get more. If I can get close enough to the thing to map it, or simply locate it, drone planes can complete the exploration. But I've got to know, and I've got to take back some sort of evidence. I'm going to be as careful as I can, my dear, 
The only hope that exists for me is to get back with accurate information. I'll take that to Washington, and then I take you and the kid as far away from here as what money we have will carry us. And if you don't get back, you'll be safe here longer than anywhere else, he told her. In the nature of things, if the stuff rises up on a hot air column, it won't start to drop until it's a long way off. We're probably not more than a hundred miles from whatever impossible thing a natural atomic pile is. I'm leaving you what money I have. It'll keep you here for years. Unless something can be done, the rest of America will be a desert long before that time. I'm guessing, he added gloomily. But nobody else is even doing that. They blame Oak Ridge but the weather maps point clearly to this area as the place from which the dust must have been dispersed. It was not a sentimental parting. Murphy was an earnest family man who happened also to be a scientist. He had done what he could for his family's safety, and it wasn't much. But now he had to do something which would most probably be quite futile, on the remote chance that it could do some good. If the source of radioactive dust clouds now drifting over America were a natural phenomenon, like a volcano, it was hardly likely that anything could be done about it. North America would probably become uninhabitable in months, or at most a year or two. There might be some areas on the West Coast where prevailing winds could keep away the poison for a time, but it was entirely possible that ultimately the whole earth would become a desert of radioactive sand and its seas empty of even microscopic life. So Murphy left his wife and daughter as boarders in a hillbilly home, a hundred and twenty miles from a telephone and two hundred miles from an electric light. He went on to verify the danger that he seemed to be the only living man to evaluate correctly. He still did not connect Bud Gregory with it. Chapter 4 The Horror Hole I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Motorists rose shakily to doctors in half a dozen cities, sick and frightened. They had high fevers and all the symptoms of burns, but there was no sign of injury upon their bodies. 
Then it was observed that a patch of blight had appeared upon a coastal highway. All the vegetation in a space half a mile long and 300 yards wide had died overnight. The highway ran through the blighted area. All the motorists had driven through it. Fish died in a reservoir connected to a great city's water supply system. The city's water was cut off, and a desperate attempt made to bring in drinking water by tank car. Power lines leading from Niagara Falls were shorted by arcs, which leaped across the air gap separating the wires. Then came the deaths in Louisville. Nobody thought about Murphy, of course. He went on doggedly, unspectacularly, in search of the thing he knew might mean the depopulation of a continent, and, of course, his own death, if he should succeed in finding it. He went deeper and deeper into that island of the primitive, the back country of the Smokies. There was no flat land. Mountains were everywhere. Spurs and crags and sprawling monsters of stone, with blankets of forest to their tips, patches of cornfield at slopes of thirty and forty degrees. There were bearded, ragged mountaineers with suspicion of strangers as an instinct, barefooted broods of tow-headed children, and mountains, and more mountains, and more. Murphy's progress was necessarily indirect, because he could get only the vaguest of bearings upon his objective. The Geiger counter clicked ever more rapidly. On the second day after he had left his wife behind, Murphy put on his protective suit. He looked more strange and aroused more suspicion among the mountaineers. There were no more roads, only trails now. The car, however, was lighter not only by the absence of his wife and daughter, but by all of their personal possessions. He wormed his way along impossible paths, fording small streams and climbing prohibitive grades, while the noise of the Geiger counter increased to a steady, minor roar. He came to a mountain cabin where nothing moved. A dog lay on the rickety porch and did not even raise its head to bark at him. Murphy got out of his car and went to the cabin. He had been so intent on the task of making progress in the direction he wished to go that he had not noticed the fact that the foliage here was dead in patches, that everything which had been green looked sickly. He called, and a feeble voice answered him. The family in the house was dying. He gave them water and stayed to prepare food for them. There was absolutely nothing else to be done. He knew what had happened, of course. They had been burned, painlessly, like sunburn, by the radiations from that monstrous atomic furnace which somewhere steadily poisoned the air. The burns went deep into their bodies. They had high fevers. They were languid and weak. They looked like ghosts. He asked questions and put food and water handy for them. Then he went on. There was nothing else to do. Only four miles farther, his car ceased to have any power at all. A Geiger counter works because it is so designed that a single cosmic ray or neutron entering it and ionizing the gas within it 
breaks down the insulating properties of a partial vacuum and allows a current to pass. Here, the air was so completely ionized that it had become a partial conductor. The spark plugs spat small sparks. The timer worked erratically. The ignition system went haywire in air which permitted a current to pass. He got out. He managed to turn it about, ready for retreat. He heaved his portable Geiger counter over his shoulder. He had a thin sheet of cadmium to shield it, so that the source of the neutrons which made it rattle steadily could be detected. The cadmium absorbed part of the neutron flood. It lessened the counter's rattling when between the tube and the neutron source. He went on, on foot. Mountains reared upward on every side, and there were thick forests on every hand, but they were dead or dying. Once in a mile or two, he saw small mountaineer cabins. They showed no sign of life. He did not approach them. The people in them were dead, or so near it that nothing on earth could help them. And his protective suit was not perfect. In any case, he was receiving already a possibly dangerous dosage of radiation. Every minute of continued exposure added to his danger. He must get away as soon as he dared. But he struggled onward, over a landscape more desolate than that of the moon, because the moon has never known life, while this knew only death. He reached a crest which was actually a pass between mountains. A steady wind blew from behind him here, and the counter roared. The cadmium plate affected it, but not too much. This must be the place for which he searched. He went on. Presently he could look downward and see into a valley of dead trees and dead grass and dead underbrush. In its center was a circular area a quarter mile across, which was, which was, somehow, unspeakably horrifying. It was bare, baked, yellowed earth. Not even the corpses of once-growing things remained upon it. It was simply red clay baked to a tawny orange, almost, but not quite at red heat, still baking from some monstrous temperature down below. Murphy saw dried leaves borne on the wind toward it, they fluttered above it and crisped and carbonized and went skyward, smoldering. There was a steady column of air rising from this hot place as from a chimney. At the very edge of the round area was the remnant of a log cabin. The side of the cabin nearest the sear space had carbonized and smoldered away to white ash. One wall had collapsed, facing Murphy. Wires ran from the cabin to a fence which precisely surrounded the barren place, upheld on thin metal rods. Sunlight glinted on glazed insulators. Murphy took field glasses and looked into the cabin. He saw a heap of ragged scorched clothing and something within it. He saw an assemblage of improvised, untidy apparatus from which glassy gleams were reflected. He could make out no details. Then he knew what had happened. It was not reasonable. It was starkly impossible.
but it was no more impossible than welding a water pump shaft in its place or eliminating all friction from a frozen-type motor so that it could be started again. Or, say, looking at a Geiger counter and understanding how it worked without the least idea of what it could be used for. Murphy had a small camera and dutifully took pictures without attempting to go closer. He had no hope that the pictures would turn out. The plates were surely fogged by the radiation. He bent his cadmium plate into a half-cylinder and did his best to make sure of what he now unreasonably knew. The results were not clean-cut. They did not have that precise clarity that a really convincing test of a physical phenomenon should possess. But the edge of the barren area was sharp. It was distinct, and the neutron flood came from the air above the bare space only. Dust swirled up in little sand devils above the baked earth and spun out to invisible thinness in the column of air which rose, spiraling to the sky. It rose and rose. The air itself was radioactive, containing radioactive oxygen and nitrogen and hydrogen from water vapor and all the elements in a moisture-laden breeze. It was a chimney a whirlwind of death-laden heated gases rising to the skies. But the radioactivity of the earth, which surely made the heat and the poison, was somehow confined. Murphy turned very quietly and went away again. He knew that he had accomplished his task, as he had first envisioned it. He knew what poured deadly poison into the air. He had seen it. He could tell how to find it again, and so he must hurry. His protective suit might or might not have preserved his life. He might already be literally a dead man, though he still walked and breathed and thought feverishly. If he could have been sure that he would live to descend into the valley and struggle to that half-burned log cabin and utterly smash the vaguely seen heap of wires and tubes and hand-wound coils, and if he could have been sure that it would not increase the menace, he would have done it. His own life seemed a very small price to pay for the ending of that lifeless, motionless threat to the life of all the world. But he wasn't sure, and the information he had, especially the fact that he knew what Bud Gregory was, was so much more important than his own life that he could not risk the loss of what he had to tell. On the way from the place he had found, floundering on in the car that at first hardly ran at all, and then back through the tortuous way past the mountainsides of dying trees and patches of dying cornfields, and the small and squalid cabins in which nothing moved, and the spectacle of a world dying about him, Murphy hardly noticed the desolation, or thought about his own very probable death. He thought with a grim concentration of Bud Gregory. Chapter 5 He Didn't Know It Was Loaded The car stopped again before the repair shed in Brandon. It was close to sunset. Bud Gregory sat in a leaned-back chair against the corner of the shed. There were eight cars waiting for him to feel like working on them. 
He opened his eyes and grinned lazily as the car came to a stop. The sunset colorings were magnificent. There was a strange, vast quiet all about. It was the sunset hush. Murphy stopped the motor and got out. Car's all right, ain't it? asked Bud Gregory genially. The car's all right, said Murphy. But I want you to do something for me. Not tonight, said Bud Gregory. He yawned. I was thinking about knocking off and going home to supper. Murphy pulled out his wallet. He had thought it out carefully. An offer of too much money wouldn't mean a thing to this man. I just want you to talk, said Murphy. Five dollars for half an hour, just for telling me about that outfit you built for somebody. That outfit that stops neutrons cold. Bud Gregory blinked at him. Neutrons, Murphy reminded him, are the little bits of stuff that make the Geiger counter, the funny radio tube, conduct electricity. You made an outfit for somebody that would stop them. Bud Gregory grinned. Now, how in heck did you know that? He asked, marveling. That fella wasn't likely to tell nobody. And I ain't. I know, said Murphy grimly. That fella wasn't as smart as he thought he was. He's dead. That outfit killed him. Bud Gregory was startled. Then his grin turned rueful. Serves him right, he said uncomfortably. But it's his own fault. I told him it was dangerous, but he'd done me a dirty trick. He swore he was going to law me for the way I fixed his car. He said the way I fixed it, he couldn't sell it even if it would run. Then he says he'd call it square if I fixed up another kind of gadget for him. But I was going to go to jail or have to pay for his car if I didn't. I told him it was dangerous, but I didn't have no money to pay for his car. It run good, too. Better than a new one. Murphy waited. He counted out five one-dollar bills. If he's dead, repeated Bud Gregory uncomfortably, it ain't my fault. I told him it was dangerous, but he wanted it. So rather than try to pay a hundred and a quarter or have a pack of lawn, I done it. It took a time, too. Murphy handed over one one-dollar bill. That's six minutes' talk, he said. Go on. Bud Gregory leaned back. He spat expansively. Don't mind this kind of work so much, he said appreciatively. This fellow come driving in just like you done. He'd skidded off a wet clay patch and smashed his radiator all to smithereens. He wanted me to fix it. It was too tough a job. I told him I didn't aim to work myself to death, but he kept pestering me. So I says, all right, I'll fix her so she can run for ten dollars. I thought that'd scare him off, but he took me up, and I didn't know how to fix it. But I knew I could figure out a way. So I got to thinking, with him pacing up and down, waiting for me to set to work. And I thought to myself, fixing that radiator is a job of work. It'd be easier to figure out some other way to keep her cool. And then it came to me. What? All a radiator does, drawled Bud Gregory, is let the heat get out of the cooling water. His radiator wasn't no good. 
If I fixed up some other way to take the heat out of the cooling water, she'd run just as good and I could bypass the radiator with a piece of hose. So I done it. Took me near an hour. How'd you take the heat out of the water? demanded Murphy. Shucks, said Bud Gregory. I got a knack for that kind of thing. You know, you can heat a wire by passing a current through it. I figured you could cool the wire by taking current out of it. I fixed up a wire so the little hunks of stuff that metal's made of got all lined up. Then the heat tries to knock them out of line and makes them pass on them. Uh, them little spinning things that an electric current is. Murphy felt a crawling sensation at the back of his skull. This was uncanny. Bud Gregory was speaking of the polarization of atoms in a metal wire, which cannot be done, so that the random movements imparted by heat, which he could not know anything at all about, would set up strains, which could only be relieved by an exchange of electrons, which would, in turn, mean a current of electricity. He had simply reversed the normal process of turning current into heat, and had turned heat into electricity to cool a motor. The direct transformation of heat into electricity has been a scientist's dream for a hundred years, one never accomplished. But Bud Gregory had done it to save himself the trouble of repairing a shattered radiator. So, said Bud Gregory, I stuck that wire in a hose and bypassed the radiator. It'd take out the heat and give current. I strung some ordinary wire under the car to use up the current. That's all. The car run good. He went off, but a week later he came back, raging that he couldn't sell his car. Nobody'd buy it without a regular radiator working. How long I been talking? Murphy silently passed over another dollar bill. Bud Gregory was decidedly something that there is no word for. He knew, intuitively, the things that trained scientists have as yet only partly found out. Just as some men know by instinct where fish will be found and what bait they will rise to, Bud Gregory knew the behavior of atoms and electrons. As freak mathematical marvels, some of them half-imbeciles otherwise, perform infinitely complex mathematics problems in their heads, with no clear idea of the process. So Bud Gregory performed miracles in physics with no idea how he did it. He simply knew the right answer when a problem was presented. Murphy felt an envy so acute that it was almost hatred. But back in the hills there was a thing that might make the world uninhabitable, and Bud Gregory had made it. He fondled the dollar bill folding it. He wanted me to fix his car right, he says, and I got mad. I told him it was righter than when it was made, and it was. Then he says he's going to law me. Then he says, look here, I was making a trip looking for some minerals. I got a thing that helps me find them, but part of it's got lost. You fix me another, and it'll save me a long trip out and I'll forget about the car and pay you ten dollars extra. He spat with an air of luxury. 
He had a dinkus like you got, only bigger, and he'd had a sheet of metal that was supposed to block off them little hunks of stuff that come down out of the sky. That's what had got lost. He says if I can fix something to take its place, he'll call it square. But he'll law me otherwise. Murphy interpreted mentally. Someone had been making a trip into the Smokies in search of minerals. He had a Geiger counter. He must have been working on a hunch that uranium could be found. It was not improbable. When Bud Gregory fixed his car in an utterly improbable fashion, as he'd fixed Murphy's, this unknown other man had understood like Murphy. But he'd come back in feigned rage and demanded the equivalent of a cadmium shield, knowing that cadmium was unavailable. He'd realized what Bud Gregory was, a near illiterate with intuitive knowledge of what subatomic particles could be made to do, a knowledge as unreasoning and as unconscious as the feats of mathematical geniuses. He demanded an impossibility because he knew Bud Gregory could achieve it, and Bud Gregory had. He made me plenty mad, said the lanky man resentfully. He stood there sneering at me, saying if I was so smart as to fix his car so it would run and he couldn't sell it, maybe I could fix something that he needed. Either that or else. Murphy recognized something like genius in the unknown man, too. He'd taken the one infallible course to make Bud Gregory work, threaten his leisure, and sneer at his ability. Of course the unknown got what he wanted. So, said Murphy, I fixed him up, said Bud Gregory, in amiable spite. I fixed up a couple of radio tubes. He had them and made them so that they made a kind of horn-shaped uh, block. Nothing could go through it. Nothing. No matter what size you fixed it, the horn would be the same shape, and you could make it any size. Nothing would get through the walls of that horn. Not even them little hunks of stuff you call um, uh, neutrons. I set up the dinkus and showed him. His clicking dinkus didn't click no more. It stopped them neutrons dead. And then I says, just for extra, you can run a wire around the place, you camp, and set this upside down, and not even bugs can get in to crawl on you. But it's dangerous. It's dangerous. He looked at Murphy, grinning. I figured it'd make him sick as a dog, but I'd warned him. It ain't my fault if he stayed in it and died. Murphy saw. He saw much more than Bud Gregory could tell him. He envisioned a quarter-mile circle of wire built in a remote mountain valley. It made a horn-shaped, cone-shaped barrier reaching down into the earth. Nothing could pass through that barrier, not even neutrons. There is some slight radioactivity everywhere. Even rocks possess it. It is the cause of the internal heat of the earth. Perhaps the unknown man had come upon indications of uranium ore underground in that valley. Perhaps not. But surrounded by a shield through which no neutron could escape, any mass of material on earth would become an atomic pile. 
A single molecule of uranium in any mass of rock will sooner or later disintegrate, giving off high-speed neutrons. Normally, they travel indefinitely and are harmless. Some go up into the air and may ionize a single molecule. Some may find a fissionable atom and disrupt it. But by far, the greater numbers are simply lost, because they can escape. Within a barrier from which they cannot escape, they would bounce backward and forward until, within even a limited mass of matter, they did disrupt another atom. Neutrons from that disrupted atom would then go on and on. An ordinary atomic pile must be of a certain minimum size because it loses so many neutrons from its outer surface that no chain reaction can maintain itself. As the size of the pile increases, the number that does not escape increases faster than the number that does. There's a size where enough strike fissionable atoms before escaping to maintain the reaction. When as many are freed as escape the pile, a chain reaction sustains itself. But when none can escape, there is no minimum size. There is no minimum purity of materials. Prevent neutrons from escaping, and anything at all, of any size, becomes an atomic pile. Murphy passed over a third dollar bill. Now I'm paying you to listen to me, he said evenly. That man used your outfit and made a circular block for neutrons a quarter mile across with the horn pointed down. Maybe a million, maybe five million tons of rock were inside it. Maybe there was some uranium in it, too. None of the neutrons could escape. Each one bounced back and forth until it broke another atom. That made more neutrons bounce back and forth and break other atoms. You knew that would happen. You knew even a little pile would make him sick. But he made a monstrous one. It didn't make him sick. It killed him. Perhaps he intended to run it a while and then shut it off. It would have created enough radioactive isotopes by its normal working to make him a millionaire many times over. But he didn't turn it off in time, because it killed him, and so the pile kept on working. Back in the mountains, it's working now. There's hot air rising from it, and every breath of it is deadly poison. It goes up high, and the wind spread it, and presently it comes down to the ground again and kills. He didn't turn it off. Bud Gregory gaped at him. It was clear that he had never thought of such a thing. So much more than a genius that there is no word for it. He was like a child, or a savage, in that he could not think ahead. But he understood now. The unnameable intuition which had carried him to the achievement of a miracle had not told him the consequences of the miracle. But as Murphy pointed them out, he saw, My gosh! said Bud Gregory. He looked enormously concerned. Nobody can live to get to it to turn it off, said Murphy grimly. Maybe a plane can drop a bomb that'll blast it, but it'll be weeks before I can make myself believed. Meanwhile, there's poison being poured into the air. People are dying right now. For five miles around that thing you made, 
There's not even a blade of grass alive. The people in the cabins for ten miles around are dying and don't know why. And that horn-shaped mass of ore and earth inside your field is full of more flying neutrons than any atom pile ever was. Suppose we turn that shield off with a bomb, and all those free neutrons are turned loose at once. How far away will they kill every living thing? Fifty miles? A hundred miles? Bud Gregory swallowed. He undoubtedly understood more clearly than Murphy himself, now that it was pointed out to him. My, my gosh, he said again. I, I, um, I didn't mean nothing like that. Murphy handed him a fourth dollar bill with an indescribable sensation of irony. Now tell me how to turn it off without killing everybody all the way to here, he commanded evenly. If it kills me to do it, that's all right. But if you don't tell me how to stop the thing, I'm going to kill you, you know, here and now. He didn't raise his voice. He didn't realize that he was threatening. It simply seemed necessary. If Bud Gregory could doom a continent or a world and not be able to stop what he had created, he was too dangerous to be allowed to live. But Bud Gregory spoke unhappily. I didn't mean nothing like that. I just meant to make that fella sick as a dog. I figured he might make a little horn and sleep on it when he camped. He'd be plenty sick by morning. But the dumb fool. Then he knitted his brows. I'll figure out something. I got a knack for that kind of thing. Chapter 6 who wasn't there. Just three days later, Murphy was back at the high hill crest, which was actually a pass between mountains. A steady wind blew from behind him. All about him, the world was dead. Nothing lived. Nothing. He didn't carry the counter now. There was no point in it. He carried instead a clumsy contrivance set up in a wooden box in which canned tomatoes had once reached the village of Brandon. Bud Gregory walked with him, anxiously holding before him a loop of wire, which he said would stop the neutrons for his own protection. Bud Gregory had actually sat up at night to make the outfit for his own protection and the mass of tangled wiring Murphy carried. They reached a spot where they could look into the valley beyond. It was literally a valley of death. There was nothing alive in it. Not one blade of grass. Not one shrub. Not one bird or insect. Not even a bacterium. Everything was dead. And a swirling, humming column of heated air rose skyward, snatching up deadly dust from a quarter-mile patch of earth that was quite red-hot now. Every grain of that dust was the most deadly stuff known to men. Bud Gregory looked. He was pale. He had come through miles of desolation. He had seen the silent cabins of the mountain folk and the shriveled crops that they had planted. He knew that he had made the thing which had killed them. But now, looking down at the carbonized half-cabin and the heap of huddled garments in it, which had been a man, he muttered defensively, 
That fella played heck. I told him it was dangerous. He propped up his loop of wire so that it still protected him. Murphy silently unloaded himself. Bud Gregory made a final assembly. There were a few, a very few, radio tubes. Murphy had traced every lead in the complicated wiring, and he could not even begin to understand it. By all modern knowledge of electronics, it would do nothing whatever. The tubes would light, and current would flow, and nothing would happen, according to modern knowledge of such things. But Bud Gregory had labored over it and risked his life to bring it here. He was untutored and almost illiterate. While Murphy had spent years in the study of just such science as this should represent, so Murphy helped as a naked savage might help to set up a radio beam, in absolute ignorance of even its basic principles. Like I told you, said Bud Gregory in a troubled voice, this new outfit is like that there thing that makes that uh, a pile. Only this don't make a holler horn. This here is solid. It won't only stop them uh, neutrons from going through a place. It'll stop them dead in their tracks, right where they are when it hits. It's going to make a lot of heat. He set up what could only be a directional antenna, weirdly distorted. Later, much later, Murphy would draw the design from memory and then marvel at the pattern it would project. Now he was simply grim. Bud Gregory checked his connections. All I'm worried about is the heat, he said uncomfortably. I guess we better not look. He adjusted the weirdly shaped antenna. He sighted by some instinctive method of his own. Then he turned his head. Don't look. It's a gonna get hot. He threw a clumsy homemade switch, and the earth rocked. There were probably some millions of tons of material acting as an atomic pile, filled with all the monstrous energy of speeding neutrons. Then, suddenly, those neutrons stopped. Radioactivity stopped. Dead. And all the monstrous power of the reaction in being was converted into heat. It was not atomic energy at all. It was neutronic energy which is of a different and vastly lower order. But that was enough. The sheer expansion of stone, raised thousands of degrees in the fraction of a second, made the ground stagger. Murphy reeled as the very hill shook beneath them. There was a lurid flash of light. The dull red glowing surface of the quarter-mile circle became instantly molten white-hot liquid. There was a monstrous bellowing and rumbling from the very bowels of the earth. And then the round lake of melted earth spouted upward. Gases underground strove mightily to expand in the mass of melted magma. Lava welled up and spread and engulfed the tiny fence and the half-burned cabin and the incredibly small apparatus which had created the whole cancerous thing cabin and everything else disappeared in the spreading white-hot flood. Then bubbles reached the surface, 
Gigantic masses of incandescent gas leaped upward. The rock was literally effervescing, boiling, bubbling, in a horrible, blinding froth which spouted masses of liquid stone into the sky. Murphy stood his ground for seconds only. Bud Gregory turned and ran, and Murphy ran with him. Ahead of them, a fiery mass of rock hurtled down and splashed. Fire broke out. There were other fires to right and left. Just once, as he fled, Murphy turned his eyes backward and saw a meteor-like mass of melted stone fall upon and obliterate the apparatus they had brought and used in the past. Murphy felt an illogical sense of relief, even as he ran on desperately. The noise died down in half an hour. After all, huge as the thing had been, it was minute by comparison with an actual volcano, however much more deadly. By the time they had reached the car, storm clouds were gathering over the blazing area. Ten miles away, the car ran perfectly from the first, in proof that there was no longer a neutron flood to ionize the air. Ten miles away, they saw rain falling upon smokily flaming hillsides. Lightning flashed among dark clouds. Water poured down. Not even a forest fire could survive such a downpour. They went back to Brandon. It took them a day and night of steady driving, alternating at the wheel. Bud Gregory had little to say the whole way back, but when Murphy stopped the car before the repair shed and let him out, Gregory grinned uncomfortably. What you going to do now? He added apologetically. I didn't mean to make nothing like that. He made me mad, and then he used that dinkus like it wasn't meant to be used. Murphy had left his wife and daughter in Brandon while they went back into the hills. Now he spoke tiredly. I'll pick up my family and go back to Washington. I'll report as much as they'll believe. Anyhow, when that rock cools off, there'll be more radioactive stuff in it than is available in all the rest of the world together. Since your apparatus is cut off, it won't act as a pile now. But it's plenty radioactive. Bud Gregory swallowed. I, um, I lost time from work going along with you, he said uneasily. You ought to pay me day wages anyhow. Huh? Say, you kind of like that thing I fixed your car with. How'd you like to buy it? Murphy grimly got out his wallet. He counted what he had left. It was his expenses for getting back home. I've got just six hundred dollars, he said. It's worth more, but I'll give you that for it. She's yours, said Bud Gregory. All his uneasiness vanished. His eyes glistened. He brought out the round cheese box and put it in the back of Murphy's car. Anyhow, he said contentedly, I can always make another one when I got a mind to. So long. Murphy drove off and got his wife and little girl. He left Bud Gregory looking speculatively at the eight automobiles awaiting the moment when he felt like working. Back in Washington, Murphy made his report. At first, they told him he was crazy. 
but seismographs did report a minor earthquake centered just where he'd said. A plane flew over and brought back photographs which proved the truth. And then the Manhattan Project took over and built a splendid concrete road to the mass of highly, if artificially, radioactive rock and extracted large quantities of practically every known radioactive isotope from it. Everybody was happy, but they wanted badly to talk to Bud Gregory, and they couldn't. When FBI men went to urge him imperatively to come to Washington, he had disappeared. He had bought one of the eight cars in his repair shop for $25, repaired it by some magic of his own, and gone off with his wife and children. He was undoubtedly a motor tramp, roaming the highways contentedly or sitting in magnificent somnolence, waiting until he felt like working or moving on. Incredible riches awaited him if he was ever found and consented to work. Neither event seemed likely. But Murphy was in the oddest situation of all. He couldn't be officially praised for what he did on leave, nor could he be required to give up the gadget he bought from Bud Gregory. And that gadget was useless. It worked, but nobody understood it. And every attempt to duplicate it had failed. Duplicates simply didn't do anything. Murphy is still studying it. But he did gain something after all. His wife and small daughter are likely to keep on living. And he was promoted a grade in the civil service. Now he gets 4700 a year. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, Carthul was not the Earthman's god. But Carthul protected him while he was a guest in the temple. Even if he tore the temple down. The Guest Rites by Robert Silverberg. That's next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast.